Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto and a 50% discount on a one-year subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any new ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Adam Hanier. We spoke about the challenges that COVID-19 and the debt crisis pose to countries in the global south, how Western economic and military intervention has undermined state capacity needed to combat the pandemic. And finally, we discussed Adam's argument that the crisis may paradoxically be in certain respects beneficial for the oil majors and the richest oil producing countries, in spite of last month's collapse in oil prices. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is a little over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Adam Hanier is Reader in Development Studies at SOAS, part of the University of London. He's the author of Capitalism and Class in the Gulf Arab States, Lineages of Revolt, Issues of Contemporary Capitalism in the Middle East, and most recently, Money, Markets and Monarchies, the Gulf Cooperation Council, and the Political Economy of the Contemporary Middle East. So in your recent writing, you've pointed out that the global dimensions of the COVID-19 crisis have figured much less prominently in commentary on the, on the pandemic, both in the, in the mainstream, but also on the left. Could you talk a bit about the scale of the crisis facing the global south and also why you think that the left in places like the UK, mainland Europe and North America have not focused more on the crisis in the Middle East or, or Africa and Latin America, say? Yeah, and we begin with that with that second part around perhaps why the the left and more broadly mainstream media haven't really at least the initial phases of the of this crisis didn't really pick up on what was going on elsewhere around the globe. I think there's a few reasons here. I think one is that obviously the global pathway of the pandemic through January and February initially followed major commercial routes through the world market, so you know hit Europe, hit North America, and other key global centres before really spreading more broadly to 
poorer countries. And I, I think that's one reason that it's just simply the fact of being perhaps earlier in the phase of all of this. Secondly, clearly the severity of the pandemic in places like the UK, Italy, Spain, the US raised a whole number of questions for you know, activists and those on the left. Uh, certainly here in the UK, we can see the scandalous performance of the, of the Tories. So I think that has raised a whole series of questions about organising around community support, conditions in hospitals and care homes, questions of housing and rent, precarious work, or all of these kinds of, of things. But I, I do think the lack of initial discussion of the threat that the pandemic poses to countries in the South does reflect a wider problem which is that it's it's a kind of a, a left nationalism, if you want to say, a view where we should worry about the situation inside our own borders, we should worry about our own national population, rather than looking at broader global questions. So uh, I, I think a lot of the way that parts of the left view the rest of the world is that this is a question of charity, it's a question of countries that are poor or, or less developed, rather than actually framing it around the structure of the world market, and particularly the role of countries like Britain, and the way that Britain globally, which is very much causally connected to poverty and de-development in other parts of the world. So I, I really think it's important to kind of foreground that relationship that Britain has and the role that Britain plays in globally, in countries like Britain, obviously. So I think that not, not kind of centering that in our politics is, is perhaps one of the reasons why the initial response to the pandemic was very much nationally centred. So the piece that I, I, I wrote was really trying to make the point that when we're looking at the severity and spread of the disease, it's not simply a, an epidemiological or, or, a, or a biological question, but it's actually determined by these kinds of social and economic conditions. And if we look at poorer countries, we can see for a whole variety of reasons, um, which I'm happy to, to go into, we can see that they're much less equipped and therefore much more at risk from this virus. Just on that point of left nationalism, do you see that as a shift in terms of left politics from, say, the 1990s and the and the early 2000s? And is there a benign framing of that where it's related to the fact that, say, with the upsurge of interest in, in, in socialist politics in the United States, for example, or, or the Corbyn moment in the UK, that there was a sense of political possibility domestically and that that led to a lack of interest in what was going on on abroad or do you think it's worse than that and do you think as you say it's actually kind of exclusionary left nationalism I don't think it's a new approach to politics. I think it's kind of been a, a hallmark of social democratic politics for many, many years. But I, I do think that certainly in the last few years, there has been a, not on the left, but more broadly political discourse, a, a move towards this kind of nationally centred politics. Obviously, we can see the resurgence of these right wing and xenophobic movements globally. But I, I do think there is a sense that, you know, we've got to worry about what goes on inside our own borders. And I, I don't think it's just a, an accident dental getting carried away with the excitement of the possibilities that exist but I think it does have something much more fundamentally to do with looking at imperialism looking at the the nature of the world market the nature of global capitalism and understanding the complicity of countries like Britain like the United States like Europe in creating the conditions that we see elsewhere around the world and on those specific conditions what are the particular challenges that countries in the global south face regarding COVID-19 which perhaps are not quite so applicable in the north 
Well, there's a range of things here. I think uh, there's beginning with the quality of health infrastructure, which is clearly a major factor in, in responding to the pandemic. We know that from the debate in the UK. We know that things like access to hospital beds, having equipped doctors and nurses, enough doctors and nurses, the provision of PPE, drugs, ICU units, ventilators, all of, all of those kinds of questions. And you know that's, that's been a major feature of the discussions in terms of preparation here in UK. But if we look at elsewhere in the world, it's just a qualitatively different situation. I mean, you look at South Asia, the Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, there are on average fewer than eight hospital beds per 100,000 people. Compare that, say, to France, where it's we're talking about 65 beds per 100,000. And this is before any preparations for the recent pandemic. So it's qualitatively different. We look at things like ICU capacity. You know, Malawi has 25 ICU beds for a population of 17 million people. So it, it, it really, th- those kinds of things. But so that's one thing that's, I think, fairly, fairly straightforward. But there are other issues here too. I, I think it's really important to point to some of the issues around conditions of labor in relation to the pandemic. Because in countries where you have a majority of the labor force engaged in kind of informal or, or depending upon unpredictable daily wages, which is really the majority of the world's population. I mean, the figure from, I think the ILO's figure is, is something like 70% of all employment in developing and emergency, emerging countries takes place in the informal sector. Now, this is really important to, to highlight, I think, because it's very difficult for people who are in informal sector work, relying on these unpredictable, intermittent kind of daily wages to stay home and self-isolate. It's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to implement the kinds of lockdown measures we might have seen in in Europe in situations like that. In fact, the ILO just said a couple of weeks ago that that these kinds of physical distancing measures are an impossible choice for informal economy workers. That was their words. So, you know, these kinds of structural conditions, the the conditions of labour, play into how the virus is going to impact places in the South and also the ability of countries to actually take effective mitigation measures. We can look at, for example, conditions of housing is another, I think, really important example here where you have estimated up to 1.6 billion people globally living in slums or informal type housing. And again, these conditions make it very difficult to to isolate or quarantine or or there are obviously ideal conditions for viruses to, to to spread such as COVID. I suppose we get a sense of that as well, even in, in some of the richer countries, don't we? In places like Singapore, where there are migrant workers living in perhaps not quite slums, but in overcrowded conditions. And we've seen an explosion of the virus there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, the, the point being that the effect, both in terms of its severity, and also the rapidity with which the, the virus spread is very much differentiated along these kinds of broader social conditions, broader economic conditions. It's not just a, a simple fact of viral epidemiology. On that point about the impossibility of people staying home when there isn't adequate social provision and there aren't the sort of furlough schemes that we've seen in parts of the global north, what do you think the most likely consequence is? Is it, is it? Are we effectively going to see the virus being allowed to spread in order to allow economic activity to continue, even if that risks overwhelming the very limited ICU capacity that you, that you describe? I think it's fairly clear. I mean, this is a this is true. I think not simply in poorer countries, but certainly globally. We could certainly look at the debates in the United States, even debates in the UK and elsewhere. That there there is this strong 
argument made by by many on the right that you know the economy needs to reopen the economy is more important than lives essentially what it comes down to and so it's not just a question for countries itself as you point out places where it is impossible to to implement these kinds of mitigation measures i certainly think it's it's going to you know it does create the conditions i i think for the virus to really spread quite rapidly i mean obviously we're at a it, it's it's we're still at a quite an early stage in the pandemic, as all of the experts are saying, in the sense that it looks as though there'll be several more waves of this and we need to be cautious, I think, about making predictions at this stage. But I, I think there's no doubt that these kinds of social and economic conditions make countries much more, put them in a much more precarious position. We've obviously seen quite a lot of variation across the world in how different states have responded to this. And there's variation within Europe in terms of how badly countries have been hit. And there's, there's also variation in, in the South, in particular Vietnam and, and the Indian state of Kerala, long run by the Indian Communist Party, have been praised for their response to the pandemic and, and the, the relatively low casualty figures, particularly striking in the case of, of Vietnam, which has not recorded any deaths. What do you think the variations between different countries tell us about the kinds of societies and, and forms of governance that are better able to, to weather the storm? I mean, as I was saying, I think that we have to be quite cautious in speaking about these kinds of issues at this stage, I think, because we, we simply don't know what's what the next few months might hold. And I think there is also a question for much of the world, you know, a lack of testing capacity, a lack of accurate recording of, of figures makes it little, we have to be slightly cautious of drawing conclusions. I'm not saying this in the case of the countries that you mentioned, but uh, I think in other parts of the world, some of the figures are uh, clearly very very dubious. But I do I do think there are some trends. I mean, I think since I wrote that piece, that piece was written in early April, I think it's pretty clear that Latin America is moving very rapidly to becoming the next um, epicenter, I think, of, of the virus. It took, I think, three months for Latin America and the Caribbean to reach 1 million cases, but less than three weeks to actually double that number. So we're seeing exponential growth. We look at somewhere like Brazil, for example, 16,000 deaths, I think, yesterday or the last figure I saw, over 16,000 deaths in Brazil, and now the number four in the world in terms of absolute cases. And again, undoubtedly something that's um, that's quite understated. So, you know, I think uh, also in Latin America, Peru, Ecuador, so things like you know, the position globally, I think, can, can really switch quickly. But I, I do think there are examples such as those you've pointed to where, you know, a quick kind of response very early on, measures taken to kind of socially isolate or physically distance people early on, the kind of contact tracing that we've seen in, in other places, I think really clearly have been effective and often in very short periods. It, it, it often is just a very short window of opportunity to make actually a very, very big difference around this kind of thing. So I think, again, it points to the the, the quality, importance of the, the, the health infrastructure, state capacities to be able to quickly conduct tests, to make moves uh, around mitigation measures, and also better levels of overall health is, is, a, is a big question as well. Generally, as we know, the kind of comorbidities associated with the pandemic that make the outcome of patients much worse. So better conditions, social health conditions, I think, make clearly a, a big impact as well. But I, I would be cautious about trying to draw it's, I think it's going to be quite a, a long time before we can make definitive statements about what, what happened where and how successful particular countries were. 
you've already touched on this a little bit, but the question of the subordination of, of the states of the global south in the international system, and in particular the, the structural adjustment programs and, and Western military interventions that those states have experienced. Could you talk a little bit about the specifics of, of how those interventions have contributed to a lack of state capacity in those countries? Yeah, I think this is a really, really key issue. And it's also something I think that the left, it actually opens up some some opportunities, I think, in terms of solidarity and, and, and campaigns today. So when we're talking about structural adjustment here, we're talking about the, the loans that are provided by um, international financial institutions like the World Bank, like the International Monetary Fund, and other governments, bilateral loans, and other institutions that come with particular conditionalities attached. So we're talking here about things like privatization, about dropping of barriers to trade, of opening up to foreign investment, of integrating more closely with um, financial markets, changes to agriculture and export, a shift to export-oriented agriculture. These kinds of measures that are fairly standard, they fall within the kind of standard neoliberal policy prescriptions, but tied to loans presented to countries in the South. These structural adjustment packages were were rolled out during the debt crisis of the 1970s and 1980s, and they've continued ever since. They're not normally described these days as structural adjustment. During the 90s, the World Bank, largely in in, uh, response to some of the big protests that were taking place globally in, in that decade, moved the language, the discourse, dropped the term structural adjustment and and adopted other kinds of more obfuscatory terms like pro-poor development and uh, things like that. But we're essentially talking about the same kind of things. If you look at um, what these loan packages say, they're they're talking about the kinds of measures that I've that I've mentioned. So these are important to really foreground, I think, because they they're a big part of the reason why so many of the factors that I've mentioned, things like types of labor conditions, types of housing conditions, the quality of health infrastructure, all of these kinds of things are related to these neoliberal measures that we've seen imposed on countries in the South. And as you said, this is not simply a, a financial question. It also comes along with force, and in particular, historically and today, we can see the way it's connected to military intervention and and the imposition of authoritarian governments. The first place where we saw these kinds of packages rolled out in Chile, connected to the uh, dictatorship in, in, in Chile during the during the 1970s, we saw in area of the world that I work on, the Middle East, we can see in Egypt the government of Hosni Mubarak, in Tunisia, the government of of Ben Ali, two authoritarian rulers overthrown in the Arab uprisings um, about a decade ago now. These two rulers were basically brought into power to implement structural adjustment, and they were praised effusively by the World Bank and other financial institutions for their strong adoption of structural adjustment measures. So there's there's a clear link between kind of military and authoritarian rule and the implementation of these kinds of measures. Now, why is this important today? This wasn't just a story of, of a few decades ago. It's something that has continued, and it's 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 really important to to situate the situation today in the context of the 2008 global crisis, because after that global financial crash in 2008, there was a very significant increase in debt levels globally. And that includes sovereign debt, 
debt owed by governments and, and particularly governments in, in, in the South. So one figure that I think is quite striking is, is the emerging, what's called emerging market debt. So these are not the poorest countries in the world. These are countries that are considered, you know, kind of for a long time being seen as the booming countries, but not, um, not the richest countries in the world. Talking here about places like Brazil, India, and, and so forth. But emerging market debt stood at $72 trillion in late 2019. That was a figure that had doubled since 2010. So you can see that even for these countries that were generally considered much better than most other places, most other poorer countries, debt levels had, had really increased. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. One, if a country has very high debt levels, it means that they're unable, they're, they're spending money on, on their servicing this debt and it means they're unable to spend money on other social items. So before the crisis, this, this pandemic, one of the figures that I think is quite striking is that 64 poorer countries were already spending more on their debt repayments than on their public health systems per year. So they're, they're spending more on servicing a debt and paying that debt many, many times over than they are on, on being able, on public health. Um, and that's only public health. There's a whole range of other kinds of infrastructure and services and education that connect, as we've said, to um, the conditions of health in, in, in these poorer countries. So that's one thing I think is this uh, situation of burdensome debt repayments. But the second thing that's really important to understand about this is that a lot of this debt is denominated in um, US dollars. And the dollar became very strong in the wake of the crisis, right? Exactly. As it tends to do in times of crisis, the dollar is seen as a safe haven. So it means other currencies have fallen in relation to the dollar. And that, that increases the burden of these debt and interest uh, repayments on this US denominated debt. So we have a, this kind of moment where countries are faced with increasingly difficult debt repayments and at the same time dealing with a pandemic and at the same time dealing with the effect of the overall economic uh, crash that, we, that we're certainly entering. So it's a really, I think, a toxic and very dangerous moment. Um, but I, I just want to end this by saying, um, you know, it's, it's self-evident, I think, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of calls that have come out for debt to be cancelled, the abolition of debt. There's a new statement that came out from a whole bunch of organisations in the Middle East today that is calling for exactly this. But actually, we're seeing the opposite happen if we're looking at what the IMF and the World Bank are doing. They're giving new loans, but using these new loans to ask countries to recommit essentially to those structural adjustment measures. So Pakistan, for example, a couple of weeks ago, just took a $1.4 billion loan from the IMF, which was an anti-COVID loan, but were committed to, were forced to commit to further structural adjustment measures as, as part of receiving that loan. So I really think this is a key question that the left can move around at, at these times. Is the intention with those conditional loans being offered now that institutions like the IMF and the, and, and the World Bank would like to see relative continued political stability in the South, but they absolutely don't want to pursue debt forgiveness as a way of achieving that? Yes, I mean, I, I wouldn't rule out, and, and certainly there have been discussions around this, and historically this, is, this has happened around kind of moratoriums on, on debt repayments or even the cancelling of parts of the debt that it's just clearly countries can't pay. But typically this happens to the most heavily indebted countries. It happens for a very short and targeted, in a short and targeted way, and essentially paves the way for those countries 
to take on further debt and also commits them to doing certain things um, in return. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see those kinds of things happen. Uh, I mean, it's a normal part of the, the architecture of, of, of debt globally. But um, I do think that uh, it's, it's clear and it's often said we shouldn't let a crisis go to waste. And that's exactly, I think, what these international financial institutions are doing today. You've already mentioned the Arab Spring, which obviously a part of the driver of, of the Arab Spring was the 2008 financial crisis. I realise it, it's a very speculative question, but looking around the world, which countries do you think are perhaps most likely to, to face a, a crisis of legitimacy in the wake of the combined economic and public health shock that the pandemic is bringing? I mean, I think the way you phrase that is, is very apt. I think this crisis of legitimacy is something that we can see throughout most countries, in fact, the very brittle nature of, of political rule, even somewhere like the UK, I think that's very obvious as well. The, the faith in political institutions, the faith in political decision making is really eroded and for very good reasons. But you're, you're right to point to the Middle East. And here, if we do look back at those earlier uprisings in 2010 and 2011, there were a number of factors that combined to produce that moment. There was one, the coming to end of, um, or the, the need to transition to a new generation of, of leaders in places like Tunisia and Egypt, that, where, where the uprisings began, and a widespread anger at these kind of multi-decade authoritarian rulers just simply trying to pass it on to their um, family members. So that was one thing. There was this crisis of legitimacy. It was all also really important, though, to, to place those uprisings in the context of the 2008 crisis again, because that global crisis did hit many countries, not all countries, but many countries in the South very severely, including parts of the Arab world, countries like Egypt and, and Tunisia. So there was that, that global, it wasn't just a, a result of factors internal to those countries, it was part of the, the context of, of the, the global situation. You also had at that moment, it just in the year before the global global crisis, increasing food prices. And that, I think, is something we can we also seeing here today. You know, someone like Lebanon, you can see very protests last week around um, the large spike in food prices we've seen in the last few weeks. I think the figure is something like 75% of the population in Lebanon is estimated to be in need of some kind of aid or support. So we saw huge protests even before the crisis in Lebanon, of, of course. Yeah, exactly. That's a really important point that we're seeing this kind of legitimacy crisis, the economic downturn that's clearly much worse than 2008. The, the effects of the pandemic in all of its multiple ways, combined with the fact that prior to the pandemic, in places like Lebanon, Sudan, Iraq, Algeria, in the Middle East at least, we saw a real renewal of um, social protest in, in through, through 2019. So, I would look to those countries. You, you made the point that it's difficult to speculate, and I totally agree with that. But uh, I, I do think we are going to see a renewal of, of social struggle in, in those in those countries in particular, where where we had this kind of quite pronounced increase in, in social struggle through 2019, and then cut short, if you like, by the effect of the of the pandemic itself. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.